want to invite you uh, tonight to go in your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, as you're turning, I want to commend you on your attendance this week, and each of you have been in your place and serving and, and faithful, and not many of you have fallen asleep during the preaching, which is good. <laughs> now that Tuesday, or that, uh, that 2 o'clock service on Sunday, that doesn't count. We'll just, we'll just put that right outside of the out of the runnings because uh, it's hard to stay. It's hard for me preaching to stay awake during that service. But uh, my kids enjoyed, we took three of the kids fishing over there at the Welch's today, and boy, they had a good time. They, uh, they caught a bunch of fish, and they had, they had a blast with that. So Judges chapter 7, I'm going to read the whole chapter tonight, and it's a familiar story probably to most of you, but I want to speak for the next few moments this evening as we conclude this faith promise conference, I want to speak to you about the subject, Victory Through Faith. You know the book of Judges is, I'm preaching through the book of Judges on Sunday mornings at our church back home, and I'm a little bit ahead here of Judges chapter 7 right now. Judges is a confusing book. You read some things in Judges and you think, what in the world is going on? And I keep telling our church family, you know, I think we're up to to uh, chapter 9 or 10, I think we're chapter 10 this coming Sunday morning, and I keep telling my church family, it's going to get weirder, so hold on, you know, as we get farther along in the book, it's going to get weirder, and the reason that the book of Judges is so strange is because God is really highlighting what happens to a people when they refuse the kingship of God, and they begin to go after their own lusts and desires. And it is really true, you know, when, when a nation in particular, and, and Judges is a picture of what happens when a nation does that, when a nation puts aside the law of God and begins to go after their own desires and to fulfill and gratify their own lusts, there's no telling where they could end up. Judges chapter 7 is right, of course, in the midst of this confusing situation. This is uh, the continuation of the account concerning a man named Gideon. And you may remember how God had called Gideon and how as the angel of the Lord came and encountered him, he spoke to him as the mighty man of valor who was hiding in fear from the enemy. And Gideon seemed to be like, me? Mighty man of valor? Who are you talking to? I'm confused about this. And God had a purpose. He had a calling that Gideon was to fulfill. We're going to read about that here in Judges chapter 7. Verse number 1, Then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, Get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go down with Phura thy servant down to the host. And thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. 
Then went he down with Phurah his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else, save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bathsheba in Zerorath, and to the border of Abel-Meholah unto Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of all Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. Now bear in mind that Gideon has been given a monumental task. God has told Gideon that he is going to lead the army of Israel against the Midianites, who have come into the land of Israel to plunder and to take and steal all that they want and to really, uh, you know, for, for many years now, they have made the life of the Israelites hard. What happened was they would come at harvest time and they would come through the land and they would just take everything. They would take all the food. They would take everything that was, that was worth something and they would carry it with them and they would go right through the land like a band of grasshoppers. They would eat everything in sight and then they would... Uh, go back to their own land, and they would stay there. And then next year at harvest, they'd come, and they'd come through, and they'd do the same thing. And they did this year after year after year. And God said to Gideon, okay, now that Israel is ready to repent, I am going to deliver them. And Gideon, you're going to be the one that is going to deliver them. So Gideon knows this is the will of God. He's willing to obey God, though he is frightened, and he's unsure of how God is going to do this. And Gideon, as we know in the scripture, is a man with some deep fears. That's why I think so many of us identify with Gideon, because we see his fears, and we don't see a man who is just flexing his muscle at the enemy. We see a guy who is saying, well, okay, Lord, if, if uh, that's what you want me to do, I'll do it, but I don't know how it's going to work out. Are you sure, Lord? Can I put the fleece out again? Uh, let me just make sure, Lord. I, I want to check one more time and make sure that you're in this. And I think a lot of us say, you know, if it was up to me, I'd put the fleece out a bunch of times too. If it was up to me, I'd be uncertain in the face of that kind of a difficulty. And so we can identify with Gideon. But now Gideon has settled in his mind that God wants him to do this. And now Gideon comes and he's got some soldiers with him, about 32,000 men, 
have agreed to come and fight against him. Now, the the army of the Midianites is much larger, uh, probably about four times, a little more than four times the size of Gideon's army. And so with his 32,000 men, he's still sorely outnumbered, but at least he has a decent-sized army behind him, and he's thinking, okay, now what am I going to do? And God begins to reveal to him exactly how this is going to work. You know, I'm reminded as I studied the story of Gideon and how God worked through him, I was reminded of what the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? You know, many times in our culture, we despise small things. We don't think much of small things. Uh, We think that bigger is always better. That more is always uh, a greater blessing. And yet, oftentimes in the Bible, God works with small things and small people. God often works in ways that are completely contrary to to the way that we would plan to work if we ourselves were God. And so some thoughts here from Judges chapter 7 that I want to share with you about the victory that Gideon experienced through faith. First of all, we find that God revealed to Gideon an unprecedented strategy. There was a strategy which God laid out to Gideon which frankly did not make sense. In verse 2, the Lord spoke to Gideon and he said to Gideon these stunning words, the people that are with thee are too many. Wait a second, Lord. Hold on. Didn't you see the comparative size of the army? Didn't you see how many of them there are and how few of us there are? But God said, there's too many that are with you, Gideon. If you go into battle like this, there's going to be a problem. And here's what God was concerned about. He said, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. See, God knew the tendency of Israel was to look at themselves and think that they were strong enough and smart enough and fast enough and that they had delivered themselves. And God wanted them to clearly understand when they were delivered, this was not their work, but this was God's work. And God said, here's the problem. When there's too many of you, you tend to think that you are the ones who are responsible for the victory that took place. You know, there is a great need in our lives, and there is also a great danger that takes place when we start to believe that we don't need the Lord. When we think that our programs and our planning and our manpower and our giving is somehow going to fill in for the absence of God's power. And I'm telling you tonight that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. There is a great danger in our lives when we start to think that we could deliver ourselves. Now, this is a very human tendency. Uh, When we get in a jam, most of us don't think, first of all, okay, Lord, what will you do in this situation? Most of us think, how can I fix this? How can I solve this? And I'm just as guilty of this as any other person. I'm a a problem-fixing kind of a person. I'll confess it. Uh, It's part of my personality. If there's a problem, if somebody comes to me with a problem, and I have to be careful about this, especially in counseling and and that sort of thing. Somebody comes to me with a problem. I'm, I'm already, they're telling me about the problem. I've got, already got a multiple choice of three possible solutions. I've got it all figured out. I'm going to let them know how it could be. And that's not always the best answer. You know, sometimes the best answer is, let's get on our face before God. Let's find out what God wants. So the Lord was concerned about the nation of Israel because really what was the problem with Israel was their idolatry. And and God wanted Israel to know they need the Lord. And so God said in verse number 3, Gideon, you tell them, you get up in front of the whole army and you make this announcement. If you're afraid and you're unsure in this battle, God says to just pack up and go on home because we don't need you here. And and you know what happened? 22,000 soldiers. That's over a third of the army, packed up and left. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, can I go? Lord, 
Can I go with those guys? Because this isn't looking too good. Now, now God, you got me down to 10,000 men. All those guys who were scared just walked away. And the Lord was showing Gideon something. At, at this invitation of the Lord, the, the army dwindles down. Then verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, we still have a problem. You got 10,000 men now, 22,000 men went home, but you still have way too many, Gideon. This is way too many. I need to get your army knocked down some more. And so I've got a test. Gideon, I want you to bring the entire army, all 10,000 men down to the drinking place, and I want you to tell them to get a drink. And then I want you to watch, because some of those men are going to come to the drinking place, and they're going to get down on their face and stick their face down in the water, and they're going to drink the water up. And you pay attention to who those are. And then some of those men are going to come down to the water, and they're going to dip their hand in the water and bring it up to their mouth, and they're going to drink out of their hand. And I want you to pay attention to those men, and I want you to separate those two groups of people. So this is what Gideon did. He's obeying the Lord, and you know the story, how they came down to drink, and out of those 10,000 men, 9,700 of those men stuck their face down in the water and drank. And only 300 men drank by pulling the water up to their face in their hands. And now God said, okay, now we've got it whittled down. Gideon, you send the 9,700 home, and now I've got the army just where I want it. I've got you with 300 men, and Gideon, now we're going to show the Midianites who's boss. Now, I know we all know how the story ends, but I want you just for a moment to pretend like you don't know how this is going to go and think about what it must have been like for Gideon. I mean, when he started this out, he had 32,000 men, and now he's got 300 men, and he's looking at an army down in the valley that is much, much larger. And he must have been asking himself, what is God up to? You know, we should be reminded tonight that God's ways are not our ways. God works in ways that we could scarcely understand and frankly, without him revealing himself, we never would plan to do it that way. I, I think about, and this is missions week here, and you're thinking about your faith promise commitments. I, I just think about the work of missions and the Great Commission, and I think there's got to be a better way, God. There's got to be a better way than using New Testament churches to go and proclaim the gospel. I mean... Lord, why don't you come up with some kind of a super-powered, uber-efficient, bureaucratic organization that is going to be well-oiled and is going to, to, to recruit lots of people and send them out into the fields to, to do your, your task? Why, God, did you give that great commission to the New Testament church? But see, God's ways are not our ways. And some of you may be thinking, as you look around the room tonight, may be thinking, well, what part... Can we play in the Great Commission? What does God want us to do? I, you know, I really believe this, that if this was the only New Testament church on the face of the earth, God would expect you to fulfill that Great Commission. Do you know Jesus gave that Great Commission to the eleven? And He fully expected them to fulfill that commission. And I think there's actually room to say they did it that they did fulfill the great commission that Christ gave to them. They were so enthused about it, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I, what I want to bring to your attention is that God's ways of working are often very different from our ways of working. We wouldn't plan it out. If we had a planning meeting, a brainstorming session, we wouldn't come up with the way that God's going to do things. Gideon would have never sent his army home and been left with only 300 men. You know, the Lord had an unprecedented strategy. But the Lord also knew something about Gideon, just like the Lord knows something about you and I. So you see, he knew that Gideon was a man who struggled with doubt. Gideon was a man who struggled with fear. And so the Lord, second of all, gave Gideon an unexpected encouragement. Now, I want you to note how it's phrased in verse 9, because now that the 
army is down to just 300 men there with Gideon. The host of Midian is beneath him in the valley. It's time to go to battle. And in verse 9, that same night, the Lord said to Gideon, Okay, Gideon, it's time. Get your men together and go conquer the Midianites. But if you're afraid and you're uncertain and you're not really sure how this is going going to turn out, I, I want you to take your servant and go ahead down on the outside of the camp of the Midianites because I've got a special message for you down there. And of course, Gideon was afraid, wasn't he? Gideon was concerned about how this was going to go. Gideon was a little bit unsure. How is God going to work in this situation? You know, what's remarkable to me is that God had promised over and over and over again that he would keep his promise, that he would deliver the Midianites into the hand of Gideon. God had assured Gideon already many, many times, but now Gideon is unsure and God is so patient with him. Now, I appreciate this because God is a long-suffering God. You know, we ought to be thankful for that. God doesn't just smack us down the first time we don't do it right. When we have fears, He doesn't just uh, rebuke us and say, get in there and get busy. He's so patient and compassionate and tender and kind. And He is, he is long-suffering towards us. You know, he was long-suffering to us before we were saved. And he's long-suffering to us after we got saved. And he's just so patient. He's patient with Gideon. And he anticipated that Gideon would have some fear. You know, Gideon is not the only one that God dealt with in this manner. In fact, if you go through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find over and over and over again times where God went out of his way to provide encouragement to his servants. I have a few examples for you. Think about Abraham. And in the life of Abraham, how many times did Abraham doubt the promise of God? Did he have concern about whether God was going to be able to keep his promise and then, you know, come up with creative ways to help God keep his promise like we do sometimes? And despite Abraham's failure... God was just so patient with him. And he continued to reassure him. And he continued to to fortify his faith until finally Abraham saw the realization of the promise when Isaac was born to him. Now I say he saw the realization of the promise. He had one son. The promise was that uh, that he would have seed like the sand of the sea and like the stars in the heavens that he would bless all the nations. And Abraham had one son. But you know, when Abraham saw that one son, he knew that God was going to keep his promise. God went out of his way over and over to reassure Abraham. I think about a little bit later in our Bibles how Moses was a man who had initially shown some some courage, but then actually he acted in self-will, didn't he? And he got himself in trouble. God was not ready for him to act. And Moses act, it acted in an impetuous manner, in a, in a self-willed manner. And God had to take Moses and put him out on the backside of the desert. And then when it was time, 40 years later, God got his attention with a bush that was on fire but wasn't consumed. And I love the understatement of the Bible whenever I read it this way. Moses saw that bush that was burning and was not consumed and he said, hmm. I'm going to go see what that's all about. That's very interesting. There's a bush over there that's burning, and it's not burning up, and I'd like to understand what's going on. And he went over there, and of course God spoke to him. And God told him to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And God revealed himself there as Jehovah. I am that I am. And he told Moses, I have a job for you. And and Moses said, I don't want to do it. Why don't you send my brother Aaron? Why don't you pick somebody else? I, I, don't, I don't talk good. Lord, don't you see I'm a shepherd? I'm more comfortable with sheep than I am with people. And, and God was just so patient with him. God worked with him and assured him until finally Moses was willing to obey God and to follow through. And, of course, we know that Moses was greatly used of the Lord. Over and over and over again in our Bibles, we find that God 
deals this way with people. Joshua, when he took over as the leader of Israel, in Joshua chapter 1, I read this not too long ago, uh, there's a reassurance in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua, be strong and of a good courage. Evidently, Joshua was afraid. Evidently, Joshua felt that he wasn't fit to step into the shoes of Moses, that those were big shoes to fill. He wasn't sure he could provide that kind of leadership. And God said to Joshua, be strong and of a good courage. I'm going to be with you. I'm going I'm to strengthen you just like I did Moses. You're going to lead the nation of Israel, and I'm going to use you. And he just patiently helped Joshua. And, of course, Joshua became a great leader by the power of God. I think about how Jesus, in his earthly ministry, spent so much time teaching the disciples this one truth. Fear not. Fear not. And do you know what happened at the very end of Jesus' ministry when he went to the cross? The disciples were swallowed up in fear. And then after the resurrection, Jesus came back to them and he told them over and over again, fear not, fear not. He assured them, I'm going I'm to send the comforter. I'm going I'm to continue to strengthen you and help you. God is going to enable you to do the tasks that I am giving you to do. Jesus was so patient with his disciples. Timothy, in the New Testament epistles, had to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul, to not be afraid. Evidently, Timothy also had somewhat of a timid nature, a timid personality, and and so the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had to write to him and encourage him to not be afraid, but to be bold and to have courage and and to preach the Word of God in season and out of season and not to fear what how people would respond and what people would do. Timothy had to be encouraged. Now, for all these people that we know as great heroes of the faith in the Bible, if they had to be encouraged, do you think it's possible that God knows about your fear? Do you think it's possible that God knows about your hesitation, the thing that is holding you back from serving Him the way that you ought to? Is it possible that God is even now working in your life to encourage you, to patiently instruct you, and to bring you along so that you will step out by faith? in obedience to Him. Now, I would say that based on God's track record, it's very likely that God is working that way in your life. Unless you think that you're one of those people that doesn't have fear, I know better. The truth of the matter is we all struggle with fear. We all struggle with insecurities from time to time. And I'm thankful on my part that God is patient with us. And so God said to Gideon, Gideon, if you'll, if you'll just go down in the valley, I have a special message for you. I'm going to reassure you. So Gideon did. He went down in the valley, brought his, his servant with him. He got down to the outside edge of the camp, and there was a tent, and there were some Midianite soldiers inside. And so Gideon was kind of eavesdropping. And you know, they're right on the edge of this massive army. The Bible describes it in verse 2 the size of it like grasshoppers in multitude. Their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. This is a big army. There's a lot of people here. They just happened to get to the right tent. Just, you know what I mean, just happened to get to the right tent. Gideon was come and he's eavesdropping at this tent. And this guy inside the tent says, I, I had this bad dream, man. I had a nightmare. Now, I've heard some nightmares. I've heard people talk about some nightmares. I've never heard a nightmare like this before. There was a cake, and and this cake of barley bread came tumbling down the hill into the host of Midian, and it ran smack dab into one of the tents, and the tent fell down and collapsed because that cake of barley bread came, and it overturned the tent. This guy's in the tent. He's... He's really upset about this barley bread, this cake. What does this mean? This is so strange. The other guy says, I know exactly what this is. This is is nothing else save the sword of Gideon and of the Lord. Because God has called Gideon, this man of Israel, to deliver Midian into his hand. God is going to deliver us into the hand of Gideon. Now, what are the chances of Gideon hearing something like that on the edge of the camp of Midian? You know what this is? This is God reassuring 
Gideon. God comes alongside Gideon, and, and what Gideon found out was very reassuring to him. Namely, the enemy was afraid of Gideon. Gideon is afraid of the enemy, but the enemy is afraid of Gideon. Now, what do you think they would have thought if they knew he only had 300 men? They might have thought a little bit differently, but then again, was it really Gideon that they were afraid of? No, it wasn't. It was actually the God of Gideon that caused them to fear, and their fear was well-placed. You know, I want you to understand tonight, we look at the world and we look at the ravages of the enemy in this world. We see what the enemy is doing in families. We see what the enemy is doing in our culture and in our country. We see what the enemy is doing in individual lives and how he is tearing down and destroying. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And sometimes we start to thinking that enemy is so powerful and we can become very afraid of his power. But I want you to know this tonight. The enemy is greatly afraid of you. Now, not so much you, but the one who is inside of you. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you know our enemy, the the enemy of our soul, Satan, he knows that his days are numbered. He knows that God is already victorious. He knows that Christ has overcome him and, and it's important for us to understand tonight when we look at this world and sometimes we are, we're, we're tempted to be overwhelmed with fear, it's important for us to know that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, here it is that they were afraid of Jehovah. And somehow the enemy knew that God had promised to deliver the enemy into Gideon's hand. I'm not sure exactly how they knew that other than that God revealed it to them. And so in verse 15, after after Gideon was encouraged in this way, talk about encouragement from a strange place. Gideon gathered his thoughts and he and his servant in verse 15, it says there, do you see, did you see when we were reading what it said he did? I'm going to read it to you. And it was so... When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped. He worshipped. That word worshipped means to fall on your face. I think he fell on his face right there. I think he said, God, you are a great God. Forgive me forever doubting you. You are such an amazing, incredible, powerful God. I'm going to obey you. I believe you. I know that I can trust you. You see, he worshiped God, and then he returned into the host of Israel. Hold on a second. There's only 300 men up there. I don't think that's a host. This is like a a special forces team or something. This is, this is not a mighty army. But God says, into the host of Israel. You know what I think? I think there's a lot more that are on the side of Gideon than just the 300 men. I don't think Gideon can see them, but I think that they're there. And God is about to give a great victory. And so he came and he told the men, arise, For the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. Do you see his confidence now? You see how excited he is and how he's anticipating the deliverance that God is going to bring. You see, he shared his encouragement with others. And and I want you to understand that when we are encouraged and when God strengthens our heart, there there are two responses that are fitting. One is to worship God because he is worthy of our worship. And two is to share that encouragement with others. You know, when, if you're afraid, there's a good chance that there are some other people who are afraid too. I, I like to remind our church family from time to time, you know, there are some times when I go to knock on a door or to share a gospel tract or to talk to somebody about spiritual things that my heart starts to beat a little faster. Uh, that I start to to doubt whether it's going to work out, that I, that I get concerned. You know, there's even some times when I get so concerned 
that I decide, no, I'm not going to do it. And I walk away from that encounter. Now, you know why I share that with our church family? Because I know that every single one of our church members struggles with the exact same thing. I'm not making that up. Sometimes that's exactly what happens to me. But you know what else I need to share with them? When God encourages my heart, and I obey God, and I follow through, and then I see God work, and I say, I knew that God was up to something. Why? Because they need to be strengthened with that same assurance that God is working and that they can trust God and they can follow through in obedience to the command of God. I need to encourage others. I believe that's why God puts us into a New Testament church. In fact, I can prove that to you from the Scriptures. We need to exhort one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. We need to encourage and and help one another, and strengthen one another's hands because it's easy for us to get discouraged. It's easy for us to be overwhelmed with fear. And we need to come alongside and say, hey, this is how God encouraged me this week. This is, this is how God is working in my life. Let's keep on keeping on for the Lord. We need to share that kind of encouragement. That's what it means to be a part of a church family. And so we see that uh, there was an unprecedented strategy And there was an unexpected encouragement. But third of all, in the latter half of the chapter, from verse 16 on, we find that there was an unbelievable victory. This victory is hard to comprehend that God could or would work in this way. But then we're reminded He's God and He can do whatever He wants. And so Gideon told everyone, here's the plan, guys. We're going to take all 300 of you men. We're going to divide you into three companies. So... I could ask Esther to do some math, all right, but I won't put her on the spot. So three companies of 300 people, there's going to be three companies of 100 each. And Gideon said, now I want you to go to various spots around the camp of the Midianites up on the hills and get in your place. There's going to be, now notice in verse 16, a trumpet in every man's hand. So don't, don't start thinking about one of those brass trumpets with valves because it wasn't that kind of a trumpet. It was probably the horn of a sheep, uh, probably something like that, what, what we might, uh, I think it's called sometimes a shofar today. All right, so it's going to be something that they're going to be able to, to blow through, make a noise through in one hand. In the other hand, uh, they're going to have an empty pitcher and there's going to be lamps burning inside that pitcher. And, of course, the reason that they're doing it that way is so that the light can't be seen. And, and each of them has this, uh, a pitcher and a lamp and a trumpet. What does the Bible not say anything about them having? As far as I can see, there's no swords. Now, maybe they had them on their belt, but they, you know, they're not ready for battle. They're not ready to rush the enemy. They're holding a trumpet and a lamp and a pitcher. And and Gideon says, now I want you to go and we'll spread around the enemy in these various places. And he said, you just wait for my signal and whatever I do, you do. He said, I'm going to come to the outside of the camp. And as soon as you you see me do that, you do the same. He said in verse 18, I'm going to blow with my trumpet. And those who are with me are going to blow with their trumpet. He said, when you hear that, you blow your trumpet. Then we're all going to break those pitchers and reveal the light. And we're all going to cry out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Except they don't seem to have any swords. So this is the plan. Now, if you were to look at that plan... 300 men are going to spread out on the top of a mountain around the valley where this massive army is gathered. They're going to scream and yell and reveal their light. What are the chances of success? I mean, really, this is a major bluff. So what is going to happen? And and these men have to be asking themselves as they go into battle, what if this doesn't go the way it's planned? What, what if the Midianites don't fall for it? What's going to happen? But, you know, there doesn't seem to be any questioning. There's no indication that these men hesitated. They each went to their place. And in verse 19 through 21, we find that Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came to their place. 
and it was in the middle watch of the night, and they had just changed the watch, and Gideon blew his trumpet, and he broke the pitcher that was in his hand. The other three, uh, all three companies together blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps and the trumpets in their right hands, and they're blowing the trumpets, and they're crying out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. They did exactly what Gideon and the Lord had wanted them to do. You know, there are many times that you will look at the plan of God, the clear revelation of Scripture, and you will say, what good is that going to do? I mean, really, what good is that going to do in this situation? But you know what the difference is? Will you obey God or not? You might say, look at this. We have nearly 8 billion people living on this planet. And, and the command to us is to go and preach the gospel to every creature. There is no way that it's possible that we could ever do that. I don't see how we could ever achieve that. What difference is it going to make if I talk to that person or that person or that person in the grand scheme of things? It's hopeless. And do you know that's how most Christians treat the Great Commission? That's exactly how they respond. They say, well, you know, people just don't respond anymore. People don't care anymore. People aren't listening anymore. You know, it's just not the same as it used to be. Uh, It's not going to have any effect. Nobody's going to listen. Why should I even try? Or they say something like this. You know, I used to do that 20 years ago back when people used to listen, but I don't do that anymore because nobody cares. Or like one man that I knew years ago, who said, I don't talk to anybody in the United States because nobody in the United States is interested in the gospel anymore. I've given up on that long ago. I just travel to Africa, and when I'm in Africa, I share the gospel because people over there are willing to talk to you, and that's my witnessing. But when I'm back here, and he lived in the States full-time, he visited in Africa once in a while, but he said, I'm so disgusted with Americans, they don't want to hear the truth. I'm not even going to share the gospel with them. Now, what kind of an attitude is that? That kind of a defeatist attitude. You know what made the difference? Of course, the power of God, but really the obedience of these men. They simply did what God had commanded them to do. They were bold enough to obey God despite overwhelming odds and to trust that God could and would do what he had promised to do. May God give us this kind of faith in this generation. May God allow us to be obedient to him in the same way that Gideon and his men were. Now in verse 22, something unexpected happened, something that no one could have imagined. When they blew their trumpets and they broke their pitchers and the lights were revealed, the Midianites were so confused that they turned on each other. Gideon's men didn't have to do anything. They stood up on top of the hill, and the Midianites commenced to killing each other. They started stabbing and slashing and running and screaming, and here they're fighting against each other, and and they're not figuring it out. They're, they're, They're killing each other. There's a bloodbath in the valley, and they're doing it to themselves. And Gideon's men must be standing up on the hillside thinking, what in the world? world is going on down there this is incredible but you know what it was it was God keeping his promise you see they weren't confused because they were horrible soldiers they weren't confused because they'd been drinking too much and and it had addled their brain they were confused because God had brought that confusion see this was a supernatural work of God to turn the Midianites against each other and finally the Midianites just take off running into the night they're running as fast and as far as they can, and now it's time for Gideon's men to do something. Some other men start to join in, and they come and join in the pursuit, and they chase after the Midianites, and they start picking them off as they're getting tired and and getting isolated. They start picking off more and more men. They got two of the princes of the Midianites, and and they they, uh, took their lives. And So there was a tremendous victory which was won on this day. Now, that, that victory was continued on the next day in chapter 8 as Gideon continued to pursue and and there was a full victory that was given by God. You see, on that day, God wrought a total miraculous triumph. 
God vindicated his reputation in the eyes of the Israelites who previously had thought we would rather worship the God Baal than Jehovah God. And this is just Jehovah God saying to them, oh, you wanted to worship that God made out of wood instead of me? Are you sure that you want to worship Baal anymore? Because I am God Almighty. I am the omnipotent God, and I am a God who keeps my promises. You see, God was trying to gently call his people back to him by allowing them to see this incredible, unbelievable victory. But now as we think about this together, and we think about the implications of this story, just a couple things that I want to make application to, and then we're done. I wonder how often we are guilty of despising the day of small things. I, I read to you that verse early on in the message, in the introduction. But I think many times we are guilty of despising the day of small things. I think sometimes we look, for instance, at a small church and we say, what difference could they really make in this generation? Or we might look at an individual who doesn't seem to have a whole lot of talents and we say, what difference could they make? We look at uh, someone with few material resources and we say, what difference could they make? You know, in in, uh, our faith promise, uh, which we just took up our faith promise a couple weeks ago and and we're thankful for that. But, you know, one of the things we always encourage in in our faith promise conference is we encourage the young people, the children, to give. And, you know, when I was just a boy, shortly after I got saved, I was about nine years old, and I remember giving my first faith promise commitment card, and it was a whopper. It was 10 cents a month. Now, that doesn't sound like much to you. That was a lot to me. When I made that commitment, I had no idea where I was going to come up with 10 cents a month to be able to make that commitment. But you know what? I was so, I wanted so much to be involved, and I wanted to be a part of what God was doing through faith promise in that church, I said, I'm going to make this commitment. And the Lord provided, and I got excited about that, and I've been given a faith promise ever since. I I like to tell my church family, I give a little bit more than 10 cents a month now. (laughs) But you know what? What I give now is no more significant to God than what I gave then. Let us not despise the day of small things. When we're taking up our faith promise cards, we we get some cards coming in, you know, 50 cents a week, a dollar a month. And I think, well, praise the Lord. I mean, that, that makes a difference. That's The Lord sees that, and the Lord rewards. Those, I, I think many of them are young people. The Lord rewards them accordingly. Praise the Lord for that. Let's not despise the day of small things. See, we've, we've gotten this idea in our country and in our culture that if it's big, then it's got to be of the Lord. I'm going to tell you that there's a lot of big things that are not of God at all. I'm convinced that most of the big churches, and I use that term very loosely in our country, are not of God at all. They're just deceiving a lot of people. They're nothing more than big, uh, big industry, big business, and basically an entertainment production to bring in some cash flow. That's all that it's about. It's not about the Lord. Sometimes we are despising the day of small things, and sometimes we are doubting that God could use us because, after all, I'm not big enough. I'm not, I'm not important enough. I'm not... I'm not talented enough. You know, I I could never be used of God like that person or this person. Maybe as a church, you say, we we just couldn't be used of God the same way because we're not that big. Listen, let's, let's not get that attitude. If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, sometimes we're expecting someone else to do the work of the Lord because they are more prominent than we are. We say, well, I, you know, I'm not that important in the work of the Lord, but brother so-and-so, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's got some Bible training and he's got some skill. Let him do it. Well, may, 
maybe he should do it, but maybe you should do it too. Maybe the Lord is, is calling you to take a step of faith and be involved in something. I, I think sometimes it's tempting when it comes to giving. Many people say, well, you know, God knows that we don't have much. And so I'm sure he appreciates that. There's some other people that I know, and they've got plenty. Let them do the giving. It's not going to hurt them, but if I give, it's really going to hurt. Yeah, the Lord knows that, but he calls all of us to give. As I think about this illustration of Gideon, and as we apply this to our lives, and as I try to apply this to Lighthouse Baptist Church tonight, I want to say to you that I am confident that God wants to use you. God wants to work through you. I can't tell you all the details of how God wants to do that, but I am confident that as one of the Lord's churches, God most assuredly does want to use you, and it is up to you to figure out what God wants you to do in obedience to Him. It is up to you to say, Lord, we don't understand it. We don't know exactly how you're going to do it. But we know that you want us to be obedient to you. And some of you who are here tonight, even right now in your heart, maybe God is encouraging you to step out in obedience to him. We've been preaching this week about going with the gospel about sharing the gospel with people. And some of you maybe are a little intimidated by that. Maybe that's something that that causes you to fear. And yet, isn't it clear in the scriptures that that's an area of obedience that we need to step forward and say, God, I will obey? Maybe God has been working in your heart and saying, hey, you know, you have a coworker, you have a neighbor, you have a relative, you have a friend that that needs to hear the gospel and and, uh, you're a little bit unsure and you're scared about what to do. Can I say to you, Step forward by faith and believe that God can and will work in your life. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to turn out perfect or that it's, not going to, that it's not going to be difficult. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm simply saying that you must be obedient and leave the results to God. You see, we really can experience victory through faith. Gideon was a man who experienced a tremendous victory because he finally came to the place that he said, I can believe God without reservation. I believe we need to have that same attitude as God's people. In this wicked and untoward generation in which we are living, we need to have the positive attitude that God keeps all his promises. We can't, but God can.